0: Welcome to Far-Fetched Fables, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa, Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find me.
2: Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are, wherever you're listening from, this is Far-Fetched Fables. Welcome to show number seventy-four. I'm your host Nicholas Eaton Clark, and this week's story is "A Shard Glows in Brooklyn" by Alex Schwartzman, featuring the further adventures of Conrad Brent, the irreverent paranormal investigator with a distinct lack of mystical ability who previously appeared in Requiem for a Druid, way back in episode number 62. Alex Schwartzman is a writer and game designer from Brooklyn in New York. More than 60 of his short stories have appeared in Nature, Intergalactic Medicine Show, Galaxy's Edge, Daily Science Fiction, and many others. He's also the winner of the 2014 WSFA Small Press Award for Short Fiction. He edits Unidentified Funny Objects, an annual anthology of humorous science fiction and fantasy. His short story collection, Explaining Cthulhu to Grandma, debuted earlier this year. The story is read for you by Mark the Encaffeinated One, Kilfoyle. Mark loves fiction, so much so that he's written some, such as the Parsec-nominated Tainted Roses, read quite a lot, a library of more than a thousand half-read books and growing, and now narrates it. He can be heard frequently on chsrfm.ca. Two of his shows regularly appear as podcasts and can be found at encaffeinated.ca and theweirdshow.com. He likes cats enough to pet them but not enough to own one and computers enough to own several but pet none of them, which is oddly comforting. And now, A Shard Glows in Brooklyn by Alex Schwarzman.
0: One by one, I set off car alarms. I walked along the curb and methodically gave each parked car a gentle kick, just hard enough to trigger the siren. Behind me, a dozen violated vehicles already blared out of tune. The prospect hung back, sullen and quiet. He was having a tough week, and my erratic behavior wasn't helping his mood any. With each siren adding its voice to the cacophony, the prospect got a little twitchier. To his credit, he hadn't cut and run. Yet. "'Philippine energy beetles are nasty critters,' I lectured him as we walked, straining to be heard over the noise. "'They nest by the power lines and feed off the electricity. "'Those flickering lights the power company says are caused by faulty wiring "'are often caused by an infestation. "'Having finished with the cars, "'I fumbled with the lock on the front door of a vacant house.' This place is lousy with beetles, I explained. We're going to have to fumigate. That's just great, said the prospect. I can't stand bugs. Now you tell me the watch is in the exterminator business? This couldn't possibly get any worse. But, of course, it could. He hadn't seen the beetles up close yet. The prospect's problem with insects was part of the reason I'd brought him to this place. I needed to know, when push came to shove, that he'd be able to handle himself. I needed him to overcome whatever phobias and preconceived notions he'd been living with before he learned about any of the really bad things that are out there. "'Relax,' I told him. "'There's some good news. These critters hate loud noise.' The lock finally surrendered to my ministrations, and the door was forced open by the pressure from the inside Hundreds of fully-grown beetles burst out of the house. Each of them was two to three feet long and stood at least a foot tall. The entire swarm rushed past us and toward the sewer, trying to get as far away from the roar of the sirens as they could. The prospect turned white as a sheet, but he didn't run. This one just might be a keeper. "'They are—' the prospect gulped. "'Enormous! "'This is New York.' "'I told him. "'We don't sweat the small stuff. "'You should see the size of the troll "'out of the Verrazano Bridge.' "'Come on.' "'I took a careful step inside. "'Shouldn't we go after them?' "'The prospect called after me. "'That brood will infest half the city.' "'The beetles we've scared off "'can't reproduce on their own "'and won't last a week outside of the nest,' "'I said while examining the foyer.' The root of the problem is in here. The house was a mess, foul-smelling and covered with greenish goo. Dozens of semi-translucent eggs, each the size of a golf ball, hung from the walls and ceiling like ornaments cradled in the slime. You could almost see the larva gestating inside. "'Do we crack them open?' asked the prospect. "'No need,' I replied. "'I've come prepared.' I pulled a small antique lantern out of my backpack and lit the candle inside with a match. The special candle, blessed by the Panchen Lama himself, activated the lantern's magic. Wherever its light shone, the eggs shriveled and died, as though they'd been doused in DDT. We proceeded through the house, using the lantern to illuminate every corner and nook. The queen would not have abandoned the nest as easily as the other beetles, so I tread very carefully. The prospect opened the door to one of the bedrooms, and there she was, three times larger than the drones we've chased off, guarding a pile of eggs at the back of the room. The queen trilled in a warning and turned toward us. "'Blaster!' I told the prospect. Frazzled by the sight of the huge bug, the prospect mumbled the incantation, getting half of it wrong. Instead of a powerful blast of energy, he only managed to unleash a spray of sparks— hurled in the general direction of the queen. The insect charged, and the prospect stumbled back, desperately trying to cast another spell. With the queen almost upon him, he managed a shield spell. The queen bounced off it, as though it were bulletproof glass, momentarily stunned by the force of the collision. The prospect began another spell. Fighting hard to keep his concentration, the queen got back up and scraped against his weakening shield. Casting several combat spells in a row isn't easy, even for an experienced mage, let alone a rookie. The prospect's apparent fear of bugs inspired him to dig extra deep within his energy reserves. With a belligerent bug inches away and held off only by an invisible barrier, the prospect spoke the words of power in a trembling voice. It was close, but he managed to finish the incantation before the shield collapsed. The queen was enveloped in a ball of fire for several seconds. When the flames disappeared, a charred chitinous shell was all that remained. The prospect was practically hyperventilating. I could have used some help, he said. You have to rely on your own magic, I told him. You wouldn't have been in trouble if you hadn't screwed up the energy bolt. Avoid the distractions and concentrate on your spells, just like you were taught. Do better next time. I walked past him into the room and used the lantern to take care of the last batch of eggs. The prospect took another look at the singed bug remains on the floor and threw up. The first time I met the prospect was several weeks ago, when I sprung him from a loony bin. This wasn't unusual as such things go. When people first begin to see, their mind wants badly to reject the truth, to pretend that the world is still safe and normal. They convince themselves, or those around them, that they are losing their marbles. Some try to drown out the new sight with pills or liquor. A few get themselves committed. They don't typically go as far as to burn their house down. Back when the prospect went by the name of George Gartner, his sight began to awaken, slowly. He began to notice things, things that regular people are blissfully unaware of. Mostly, he noticed a particularly nasty ghost that's been haunting his house since the early fifties. The only one more surprised by this development than George was the ghost. You would think that the old spook might have appreciated having someone to talk to. Being stuck in that house for over half a century with no one but the cats even remotely aware of your existence couldn't have been fun. Instead, the ghost unleashed fifty years of pent-up frustration and anger on poor George. Every day George's sight became clearer, and the ghosts cursing louder. It followed him around the house, wailing, nagging, and shouting abuse the entire time. It got so bad, George could no longer remain in his own home. He went through the usual stages—denial, self-medication, and trying to share what he could see with the world— he even tried to get a priest to perform an exorcism, but the church won't battle what they can't see. Eventually, George couldn't take it anymore. He bought a container of gasoline, poured it all over the house, and set it on fire. Lucky for George, he'd been seeing a shrink, and his claims of ghosts and otherworldly creatures had been duly documented. Because of this, when the cops and firefighters sorted things out, he got sent to the nuthouse rather than the prison. The head physician at Bellevue's mental ward owed the watch a few favors, and he knew to call us any time someone like George would turn up. After a couple of weeks, it was easy as pie for him to declare George no longer a danger to himself or others and release him into our custody. I swaggered into George's hospital room like I owned the place. I've learned how to make a good entrance over the years. Perception is as important as reality sometimes, and it's crucial to immediately establish who's in charge. "'I've got good news and bad news,' I told George in lieu of a hello. "'The good news is you aren't crazy. "'The doctor said so, so it must be true. "'You can pack your toothbrush and get out of here whenever you please.' George gaped at me, trying to puzzle out whether I was legit or just a fellow patient. "'The bad news?' That ghost was real. So are all the other weird things you've been noticing out of the corner of your eye. You can see them now, but more importantly, they can see you. I told him about the real world. Beings and things that only one out of every 30,000 people can see. The world the rest of humanity catches glimpses of through fairy tales and scary campfire stories. Not a nice place at all. I told him about the Watch, the group of people with sight who do their best to protect humanity. I gave him a choice. He could join us, or go out into the night, and deal with whatever's out there on his own. Few people ever turn us down when the situation is laid out for them like that. Then it becomes a matter of making sure they've got what it takes to join. The first order of business was to ditch his name. Real names have power, and one shouldn't casually volunteer them to every stranger one meets. Stripped of his name, George became a prospect. If found worthy, he would choose a new name for himself, a name that's safe to share with others. Mine's Conrad Brent, and I've been wearing it proudly since the 90s. After we finished taking care of beetle eggs, our next stop was to visit the Oracle of 86th Street. She had sent word that she wanted to see me, and the Oracle isn't someone I like to keep waiting. She might get annoyed and predict something unpleasant to my future, like an ingrown toenail. The Oracle's predictions came true much more often than not, and no one was entirely sure whether she merely sees the future or influences it. The whole cause-and-effect thing gives me a headache, so I try not to think about it. Much. I left the prospect in the car. He wasn't advanced enough in his training to be meeting the major players. Besides, I suspected that the Oracle knew things about me, things that the prospect had no business learning. The Oracle operated out of a one-bedroom apartment above a Korean nail salon in a run-down building. She could do far better for what she charged. One time I asked her about that. She smiled cryptically. She surveyed the peeling wall paint and leaky ceiling and said that she was exactly where she was meant to be. "'Conrad Brent.' She got up from the love-seat to greet me, her voice strong and even in contrast with her small wrinkled form. "'Your future is fire. I see difficult decisions, and you'll make the wrong ones. A flame wave will burn the buildings, char the churches, scorch the schools, and strafe the streets. Yours is a dark destiny of challenging choices and tragic tribulations.' "'Cut the crap, Agnes,' I interjected. "'I am not a customer. "'Surely you didn't call me here just to reiterate the same doom and gloom scenario "'you've been scaring me with for years?' "'Philistine,' she sniffed. "'Some people pay good money for the kind of insight I share with you free of charge. The day will come when you'll wish you listened more attentively. "'Fine, then. Let's tend to a more immediate problem.' "'There is a charlatan in Williamsburg who calls himself the Crimson Prophet. "'He's been swindling the unwary and besmirching the good name of honest clairvoyance. "'A thorn in my side he is, and I would like for you to remove him.' "'Really, Agnes,' I said, "'this isn't like you. "'There are dozens of phonies out there taking advantage of the ungifted, "'and they are hardly a threat to someone of your considerable and real talents.' "'You can't expect the watch to act as your muscle "'leaning on some two-bit fortune-teller "'who happens to irritate you.' "'Those were my sentiments exactly,' the Oracle replied. "'Until a few days ago, "'when this upstart somehow got his hands on an Atlantean shard.' "'I should have known the Oracle had a serious difficulty "'when she contacted the watch. "'Her own resources are substantial enough to handle lesser issues.' A shard showing up in New York wasn't just a problem for her. It was a problem for all of us. 3,000 years ago, Atlantis was the first global superpower. While most of humanity was muddling its way through the Bronze Age, Atlantis had skyscrapers, a public transportation system, and a power grid. Powering it all was a giant crystal, fused with science and magic more advanced than anything another human culture had accomplished. Then or since. One day a crack appeared in the crystal. Some say it was an accident. Others blame the Atlanteans themselves, who put too much strain on the crystal, greedily drawing ever more power. Their best alchemists tried feverishly to seal the crack, even as other Atlanteans fled the island. Ultimately they failed, and the resulting explosion annihilated their culture. THE CRYSTAL ITSELF WAS BROKEN INTO THOUSANDS OF SHARDS, THE SMALLEST OF WHICH ARE STILL VERY POTENT AND INCREDIBLY DANGEROUS. A DECENT-SIZED SHARD IS CAPABLE OF INCREASING A MAGIC USER'S POWER HUNDREDFOLD, WHICH OFTEN DOESN'T END WELL FOR ANYONE, MOST ESPECIALLY THE HAPLESS MAGE WHO DARED TO USE IT. A MINOR PERSONAGE LIKE THIS CRIMSON PROPHET CHARACTER GETTING HIS GRUBBY LITTLE HANDS ON A SHARD WAS EVEN WORSE. It was like letting a child play with a suitcase nuke. I jotted down the Crimson Prophet's address and said my goodbyes. The Oracle of 86th Street would get the help she had asked for. This had just become the watches problem. I had to give the Crimson Prophet some credit. He knew how to live well. A stately brownstone in the nicest part of Williamsburg was a stark contrast to the Oracle's decrepit abode. I was ushered in through a series of posh rooms by a pair of elegantly dressed men. A trained eye could catch their holsters, hidden under expensively tailored suits. These guys were muscle, but not the cheap, thuggish type. They were the upmarket variety, the sort that could handle themselves in a hoity-toity setting like this, but hadn't forgotten how to break kneecaps out back when necessary. The crimson prophet waited for me in the middle of a tastefully decorated study. The rare paintings and antique furniture served to make the rich feel right at home and to intimidate the rest. I did my best to appear unimpressed, bordering on slightly put off, on general principle. The prophet himself was a tall, skinny man in his thirties. He wore a three-piece suit with a red velvet robe draped around his shoulders. All he was missing was a top hat and a handlebar mustache, and he'd be ready to perform in a play as some sort of Victorian villain. "'Welcome,' the prophet flashed a blinding smile at me. "'I must say I was quite surprised when my men told me about a stranger "'showing up at the doorstep and demanding an appointment. "'My reputation must be spreading among the populace faster than I anticipated. "'You do, however, have me at a disadvantage. "'Whom do I have the pleasure of addressing? "'My name is Brent, Conrad Brent.' "'I could not resist the James Bond bit.' I'm with the watch. A blank stare was followed by several seconds of uncomfortable silence. Could it be possible that the Crimson Prophet did not know about the watch? We're a group of mages who protect the world from supernatural threats. We keep the Fey in line and rein in any rogue humans who might choose to take advantage of the ungifted. Arcane cops. The Crimson Prophet's smile got even wider. "'How delightful!' he added, with the barest hint of disdain. "'We aren't cops,' I said. "'The watch is a law unto itself. "'We recognize no greater authority, "'and those we take an interest in are most certainly "'not presumed innocent until proven otherwise.' "'I see,' said the Prophet. "'And what can I do for your illustrious group?' "'If you're looking for insightful and stunningly accurate divinations, "'you've come to the right place.' "'No thanks,' I said, thinking of the oracle's fiery foretelling. "'I'm trying to cut down.' "'The Crimson Prophet indicated disappointment "'in an its your loss, not mine kind of way. "'Something else, then. "'It has recently come to my attention that you own an artifact "'that is of interest to the watch,' I said. "'It's a small chunk of incandescent crystal. "'I was hoping to see it.' "'I did recently acquire such a trinket,' said the prophet. "'He rummaged through a desk drawer "'to produce a leather-carrying case. "'It was a gift from a grateful patron "'in acknowledgment of the fine work I've been doing. "'He opened the case, and there it was, "'a piece of Atlantean crystal the size of an iPhone, "'glowing warmly like a dimmed light bulb. He tapped it with his index finger and shimmers of energy spread across its surface like ripples from a rock thrown into a still pond. He was the largest Atlantean shard I'd ever seen. "'This is it, precisely.' I kept my voice level to hide the excitement. "'The watch has been working to recover this and several other items stolen from a friend we owe a few favors to.' I was making up the lie on the spot. "'Would you be amenable to perhaps selling it to us?' "'The Crimson Prophet extended his hand, "'inviting me to take another look around. "'As you can see, I am not in need of cash at the moment. "'A trade, then,' I persisted. "'We have access to a wide range of rare objects "'that could be very useful in your line of work. "'I can get you something flashy and clearly magical "'to impress your clients. "'A phoenix feather, perhaps, or a caged fairy.' "'plus the watch would owe you a favor, "'which is a valuable commodity in its own right. "'Those are some interesting possibilities.' "'The Crimson Prophet got up to indicate that our meeting was at an end. "'I will consider your offer, "'but not until I have made further inquiries as to the crystal's value. "'You understand, I am sure.' "'I thanked him and headed out. "'I didn't really expect my offer to tempt him.' While the Prophet was a dilettante, when it came to magic, he clearly understood money and power. He would not relinquish the crystal voluntarily. Fortunately, this wasn't going to be an issue. I'd staked out his home, and there were no magical wards or other supernatural defenses in place. I'd be back at night to liberate the crystal. A fool in his shard. are easily parted. Lacking arcane protections, the Crimson Prophet would have to rely on mundane security. Non-magical problems are best solved via non-magical means, and there existed no better nation than Petya. At six foot four, Peter Petya Kuznetsov stood an entire head taller than me and was at least twice as wide. He moved with the easy grace of a ballet dancer, which he wasn't, and the precision and purpose of a killing machine, which he totally was. Peter was trained by the Spetsnaz and had worked for the pennant, the Russian government's most elite special ops unit. Some say he had gone rogue after a series of unjustified kills. Others claim he was planted in New York City as a pennant sleeper agent on some sort of a long-term mission. Either way... Petya was the best operative money could buy. At around four in the morning, Petya disabled the security system in the Crimson Profits brownstone. The lock on the front door barely slowed him down. He slipped inside, motioning for the prospect and I to wait. Two minutes later, Petya emerged and weaved us in. The three of us quietly traversed the dark hallways. We passed by one of the goons I met the day before— his unconscious form slouched in a chair, his gun still in its holster. Another sentry lay sprawled on the floor in the next room, a small trickle of blood congealing at the corner of his mouth, a recipient of Petya's tender mercies. Unlike the rest of the house, the lights were still on in the study. Petya paused by the door to disable yet another security widget. Then we were inside. I reached into the drawer from which the prophet had produced the case earlier, but now it was empty. As I looked up from the desk, a searing pain shot through my body and brought me to my knees. It was an arcane attack of immense power. My various charms and amulets had absorbed the brunt of it, yet I still felt like I'd just been tasered. Absent my protections, Petya and the prospect were not so lucky. Petya was out cold, his ungifted body defenseless against the hostile magic. The prospect fared only a little better. He moaned in pain by the door. "'Welcome back, Mr. Brent.' The crimson prophet towered over me. The shard gripped in his right hand. "'And, yes, in case you are wondering, Atlantean crystal is everything it is said to be, and more.' I tried for something witty, but was only able to produce a pained grunt. Enhanced by the Shard's power, the Prophet's magic was too much for me to handle. "'How monumentally arrogant of you,' said the Prophet. "'Yet so predictable. You presumed me powerless, and therefore felt justified in stealing my property. The Watch pays lip service to protecting ordinary people from the wielders of magic, yet here you are, breaking into my home like a petty burglar, just as I expected.' The effects of the arcane blast were beginning to recede. Out of the corner of my eye I could see the prospect trying and failing to get up. I had to buy time, keep the Crimson Prophet talking, so I tried again, and this time I was able to groan an actual word. Why? The Prophet smirked. Because I don't like competition. Now that I have settled here, I intend to be the one and true power of this borough, able to do whatever I please. Others are mere nuisances, but the infamous Conrad Brent of the Watch, you were always going to be a problem. I could find and kill you, but then the Watch would send other mages to avenge you, and the war would never stop until I got them all. He leaned in closer. I pretended to be a mere fortune-teller. Set a event in motion that would inevitably lead to this very moment. Lesser intellects are so easy to manipulate. Now I get to have everything I want on my terms. Even the watch recognizes self-defense. You invaded my home and were accidentally killed in the struggle. Your superiors will understand. Plus, once I've taken your magic and added it to mine... I will become so powerful that the watch bigwigs will be only too glad to let matters rest. The crimson prophet grabbed me by the front of my shirt with his free hand and lifted me up to his eye level. He then touched the shard to his forehead and began an incantation. The shard flared as guttural words spoken in a dead language hung in the air with an almost physical presence. The Crimson Prophet was casting a spell that would rip the magic right out of me, a spell so difficult and dangerous that even the most talented mage would be foolish to attempt it. A spell that he could manage now, thanks to the power of the shard. In moments he was going to drain all of my arcane powers and claim them as his own. Little did he know. He struggled to finish the incantation, barely able to contain and direct the dark magic even with the power of the shard. As the last words were spoken, a great jolt shot through my body, an unstoppable invasive force seeking to collect every shred of my magic and bestow it on the prophet. Nothing happened. The crimson prophet still held me up at eye level. I could see his pupils widen with surprise, a realization that something had gone wrong. Then I made a fist and punched him hard in the face. There was a satisfying crunch and the Prophet staggered back as blood poured from his broken nose. I went after him, pummeling him to keep him off balance. He whimpered as he tried to scamper away from me. I grabbed his hand and pried his fingers open. I clenched the shard, but it grew dim in my hand, like a useless chunk of glass. The Crimson Prophet reasserted himself and lunged at me, trying to regain the crystal. Even with a broken nose, he was a fair match for me, after I had been worked over by his spells. As he reached for me, I turned around and threw the shard. The shard slid across the floor, landing near the prospect. He grabbed for it with both hands, then cupped the crystal to his chest. The Crimson Prophet went after him, but before he could cross the room, the prospect fired off a beam of energy. The air smelled of ozone and singed hair. The Crimson Prophet stopped and stared with disbelief at his chest. In it, There was a fist-sized hole burned cleanly through. Wordlessly, he crumpled onto the floor. "'Now that,' I told the prospect, who appeared shocked by the intensity of his own spell, "'this is how you cast an energy bolt.' The Prophet's plan was nearly perfect. He couldn't have known that I was the only member of the watch without magic. Almost no one knew, not even others at the watch itself." It was an accident, a freak of nature, capable of seeing the arcane, but with no powers of my own. When I became a prospect, my mentor could not figure out why I failed to cast even the simplest spells. He was not obtuse, it's just that there had never been anyone like me before. If you could see magic, you could cast it, simple as that. Well, I couldn't. I learned to get by. My weapons were bluster, information, and an array of enchanted tools and magical charms that could make Batman's utility belt turn green with envy. I performed my duties for the watch and used their authority and resources to quietly look for clues, hints of what was wrong with me and how to cure it. And one day I would find a way to do magic, a way to repair whatever broken link had crippled me. I was glad that day had not yet come before I met the Crimson Prophet. I extended my hand wordlessly, and the prospect handed over the shard without hesitation. I smiled at him. To experience such power and give it up voluntarily is no small thing. Yes, this one definitely had a future within the watch. First we had to tend to Petya. Then I'd tell the prospect the good news, so he could spend a few happy hours— picking out his new name.
2: I love that Conrad Brent is the thinking person's supernatural hero. He has to be. He's a fun twist on the archetype, and we look forward to reading more of his adventures. I was very fortunate a couple of weeks ago to be able to speak to Alex Schwarzman about this and other stories. So... Hold on to your hats. Here comes my interview with Alex. So, Alex Schwarzman, thank you very much for joining us on the show today. Our listeners have just heard your story, A Shard Glows in Brooklyn, which is, I believe, the third story that you've had on Farfetched Fables?
4: I believe so, Yes and thank you for having.
2: Me. It was actually written before the others, is that correct?
4: Um well, uh, the, the the first story that you have podcasted was a very recent one. It was a piece of flash uh that came out of Daily Science Fiction recently. Uh but Shard Glows in Brooklyn is uh is the first story uh that I wrote for in in a Conrad Bright series in about 2011 or 2012 actually. So uh, it, yeah. is, it, is, it is an old story for me.
2: I mean, I've had a look at your uh, Wikipedia page. Oh, Wikipedia. You are quite a prolific writer. You've written a lot.
4: Uh, Well, I started writing in 2010. So, uh, again, this is actually quite recent for me. But uh, what allows me to be so prolific is that I have written no novels whatsoever. Everything I've been working on for the last five years uh, has been short stories. The longest thing I have out is a novella, and it's just one in a couple of novelettes. Uh, I write a lot of short stories and a lot of flash fiction, which allows me to have uh, seemingly a lot of material out. I've actually had over 80 stories published to date. Uh, but when you add that word count together, it's not quite as impressive as it first appears.
2: So when did you first know you wanted to be a writer? Is this something that's, that's been sitting at the back of your mind for a long time and you only took it up five years ago? Or, or why so recent?
4: Well, uh, I've wanted to be a writer since I was a kid. Uh, I've been reading science fiction since I was about 9 or 10 years old. Uh, I literally grew up uh, reading Silverberg and Shackley and Harrison uh, in translation in Russian. And I was uh, sort of kind of, you know, trying to make very early attempts at writing back then when I was 10, 12 years old. Uh, But then my family and I uh, immigrated from the Soviet Union to the United States, and I spoke no English. So for the longest time, I felt as though I would not be able to write publishable fiction because my English wasn't good enough. I do think that I waited a little too long. I, probably, I I wish I had started sooner. I wish I had started you know five or ten years sooner. But it did take me time to learn the new language, to learn the nuances. And even now, uh, as I write, I rely on the kindness of my regular beta readers to fix up some of the tenses and you know, some of the things that I always get wrong because it is still my second language. So uh, the version that the readers and the listeners get is already polished and you probably will, will, will listen to it and go, oh, no, that, that sounds like perfectly good English, but it has been edited, you know, so so I still it's still imperfect for me otherwise.
2: So how long does it normally take you to write your, your average short story, for example? Um,
4: a piece of flash uh, I can usually write in an hour or two. Uh, And a longer story can take anywhere between a couple of days and a couple of weeks, depending on uh, how complex it is. So I have a process. Uh, I don't sit down to write a story until I know precisely how it begins and precisely how it ends. Uh, So I, I, I write a lot of that middle part by the seat of my pants. But I'm very much a plotter when it comes to the structure. So I have to know exactly where I'm going. And that way, every scene I write is in some way driving the story toward that conclusion. That allows me to, to write more quickly and to revise and delete less, which is which is the part that I hate the most.
2: So what did you do before you started writing? I mean, uh, what, what did you do to make a living up to now?
4: Oh, so my day job still to this day uh, is I run uh, New York City's largest game shop. Uh, so we, we, you know, we're, we're we're a game store and an internet cafe, and we sell things like Settlers of Catan and Magic: The Gathering, and uh, you know, miniatures and things like that. So, um, so I've been in the gaming industry for a very long time. I started out in that industry playing Magic: The Gathering professionally, and I've traveled to over thirty countries. Uh, so, I you know, wow. I've won quite a bit of money playing it, and that's how I got the funds to start the store. I then went on to design games. So I've worked on on, on game design. I have several credits to my name. I've worked on games for companies like Upper Deck Entertainment and Marvel and Blizzard, uh, directly or indirectly, because sometimes it's licensed products. And I actually, uh, you know, some of the games that I've worked on have received awards. So so I've done very very well with that. And to this day, I do a lot of work, uh, both running the store, as well as occasionally consulting for game companies, technology companies, uh, on matters of marketing to the young adult market, as well as uh, on design and, you know, you know, various uh, things like that. Uh, so that's still my day job. I don't I don't write for a living because, you know, short story sales don't really, uh, you know, put bread on the table.
2: <laughs> oh, ain't that the truth. So do you feel that your history in gaming or your um, experience of gaming has fueled your writing? Has it given you, uh, are you able to plot better because of your experience with gaming?
4: Absolutely, uh, absolutely. In fact, uh, Ken Liu has once assessed, when he, you know, he wrote an introduction to my short story collection, and his assertion was that my plots are very tight because I kind of approach them in the same way as I do deck building and magic, which is something that I never thought of myself, but it's an interesting assertion, and certainly, the you know, I don't know if that's exactly right, but the same element of, uh, of, of sort of... Uh, Approaching everything as a game, find, finding the most efficient and most sort of, you know, the best way to uh, to solve whatever problem you're working on. I feel like that's something that uh, my gaming background has really helped me with, and and because of that, a lot of my stories tend to be, you know, sort of the throwback stories, kind of like the stuff that you know, like Shackley and Frederick Brown was were writing where. Uh, there's a clever solution in the end, even even though they're not necessarily, you know, the stories where it's all about the ending and it's a twist ending, but there is some sort of a clever solution involved. Uh, and and that's why I concern myself with endings so much. I feel that's the part that a lot of writers tend to, tend to mess up the most.
2: So how much time do you actually devote to writing? Is it just sort of weekends and, and, and evenings? Or do you actually devote time during the day to writing as well?
4: So on average, I would say it comes to an hour to two hours a day. Uh, but there are days where I'll be able to put in four, five, six hours, and there will be sometimes there'll be several days in a row when I don't get to write at all. So it's very it's very minimal, which again is uh, kind of in influencing my output as well. So I, I would love to do more, but I I'm not looking to to quit my job. I'm not looking to become a full time writer and. Because then it stops being fun and it becomes a job, and and, and and additional stress is not something that I'm really looking forward
2: to. Do you have any um, strange writing quirks, like lucky socks or um, a special kind of tea that you have to have? Do you just kind of sit down and write?
4: Well, coffee certainly fuels my writing. Uh, I actually did not used to drink coffee almost at all until uh, I started writing, and then I went through, I used to write in the evenings almost exclusively. Mm -hmm. Uh, But then my uh, my son became old enough where I needed to drive him to daycare every day. And I would have to get up early in the morning, drive him to daycare. And fortunately, his daycare was a block away from my favorite uh, breakfast place. So I would stop by on the way back, and I would pick up breakfast and a cup of coffee. And... The coffee was something I really need since I was not a morning person. It would wake me up wonderfully, and now I sort of consider, uh, you know, coffee to have uh, almost a co writer credit on most of my stories. Like whenever I caffeinate myself, I'm able to produce words uh, much more intellig- intelligibly and, and quickly. Uh, and, and, and I even went as far as to edit an anthology called, co- you know, Coffee: The 14 Caffeinated Tales of the Fantastic uh you know so so that's that's definitely uh, talk about the writing quirks that's that's definitely one of mine i need to caffeinate myself regularly um, and i do have a you know it doesn't you know a cat which every writer has to have so of so i'm course. covered in that you know <laughs> without a cat you know you would you know uh, i i'm pretty sure they would kick me out of the writers guild you know.
2: well you know uh, it's not a real story unless there's typos induced by the cat trying to get you to pet it while you're while you're writing
4: Right. Or, or, or perhaps it's just, a you know, because the cats, they're, they're very harsh critics, you know, so you know they're just trying to delete the words that you're putting on. They're going like, this is crap.
2: <laughs> no, I'm pretty sure that's feed me. Stop typing and feed me.
4: Well, yeah, that, that, that too. Yeah. That too. But, you know, you know dogs, see, dogs are, are, are like perfect fans. You know, they're just going, more, more, you're doing
2: you're great. great. You're wonderful. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah
4: you're, you're, you're wonderful. Cats are are, are, are more like Lois Tilton, You know, they're just looking at it like, that's crap. <laughs>
2: So um, do you have any plans for more full-length books? Do, do you think there's a novel somewhere in your future?
4: So I'm working on one now, and I'm about halfway through it. Oh,
2: very um, exciting.
4: Now, I, I'm best known as a writer of humorous short stories, so obviously the novel that I'm writing is grimdark fantasy. You know, that's... Uh, I, I, I've decided to set the mode for myself on difficult. I don't, I don't, you know, I don't know why I do this to myself, but uh, in fact... Uh, the Conrad Brent story, uh, which uh, a, a bit of which uh, the listeners have just heard, was going to be my first novel. And then, you know, I, I've plotted it out some, and I have those details uh, ready to go. Mm-hmm. But then uh, the story that I'm working on now just kind of gripped me and wouldn't let go until I committed it to paper. And so I started working on it. And at the pace I'm going, I figure it'll probably be ready by 2020, but I can't make any promises. <laughs> okay. And, uh, but but I am I am about halfway through the book. I'm about uh, I have you know close to fifty thousand words committed to paper, and most of it has been through one or two edits because I, t- I tend to obsessively go back and edit and reedit myself, which adds to to the slowness with which I'm progressing.
2: Do you ever hear from your fans? Do you get feedback from readers?
4: Oh, absolutely. Uh, I mean, social media is great for that. Um, I've, I've I've connected with a lot of my readers on both Facebook and Twitter. Uh, but also I get a lot of emails, uh, especially when the new story comes out, uh, and as long as it comes out in the relatively popular market, uh, I tend to get a flurry of emails and, 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 connect with new readers and also meet people at science fiction conventions. So yeah, I mean, I get a lot of feedback and it really, uh, it really fuels you. It really helps you, uh, move forward because, you know, as a writer, you meet with so much rejection and so, so many difficult, uh, you know, you know, like every time you submit a story, you're more likely to receive a rejection than an acceptance, even even if you're a fairly successful author. And so, anytime time you get that positive reinforcement of of fan mail or people coming up to you and saying, "Hey, I enjoyed the story," it's really invaluable. And you know, if you're if you're a reader uh, of of any author who's listening, take a moment and, and write to them or post a review of their of their book on Amazon or whatever it takes. But it really does brighten our day.
2: Well, you've already preempted my next question. Anything you'd like to say to the fans of Triple F?
4: Well, uh, we th- first of all thank you very much for listening. I think it's a great podcast, and I really enjoy hearing uh, my work and other works on it. And uh, again, I mean, if you if you enjoy the stories that you hear, uh, seek out the author, find out more of what they're doing. Uh, most of us are, uh, you know, we're not growing rich on on our work. So, you know, if you if you see a book that uh, that you might like, you know, pick up a collection. It's all, you know, usually it's. Only a cost of one or two cups of coffee for, for an ebook of, of, of almost any of the authors that appear on these podcasts. And so, if you think
2: of how much coffee out. went into creating it, it's kind of worth it.
4: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, Coffee and coffee out. That's, <laughs>
2: <laughs> Fantastic. Alex, thank you so much for your time today. I'm sure all the fans really enjoyed um, hearing from you. And hopefully we'll be able to feature more of your stories in the future.
4: Anytime you would like one, all you have to do is ask. All thank right. you very much.
2: All right. And I hope you enjoyed the interview. I did have to edit out at least another three-quarters of an hour of chit-chat, chit-chat with Alex. He's a very interesting man. I hope you enjoyed today's show. Please remember that Far-Fetched Fables operates under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 3.0 license, which means you can download the content and share it all you like, but don't change it or sell it. And be sure to give credit where credit is due. All other copyright remains that of the author's. Please don't make us call the watch. If you like what you hear at Far-Fetched Fables, please consider making a donation to the District of Wonders. The buttons are on the website and are excessively easy to use. No magical skill required. If you'd like to share your thoughts on this or any of our stories, you can leave your comments on the F website or on our Facebook page. We do check these things regularly, and we get so excited when we get comments. Please do. I'm off to go and make myself one of those lovely beverages I'm always talking about. I hope you have a nice day, afternoon, or evening. Bye now.
0: This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.